play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, comedian and writer Maeve Higgins. Maeve is a proper, butter-loving Irish lady who moved to New York six years ago, and she recently wrote a book about it. Her new book is called Maeve in America, which also happens to be the name of her podcast. Maeve is a contributing writer for The New York Times. She co-hosts a weekly comedy show in Brooklyn. And Glamour Magazine says, quote, If Tina Fey and David Sedaris had a daughter, she would be Maeve Higgins. Your level looks good. I'm recording right now. So uh, let's get started. Hopefully you can fix my accent in post. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, how do people react to your accent? Because I know, you know, women are always talking about like men with their sexy Irish accents or Australian accents. Does that work the same for women? I have never gotten that. No, definitely not. I mean, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, you remind me of my dad who died. But <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> nobody's ever like, oh, that Irish accent turns me on. If you happen to like the Irish accent, you're in luck. This episode is chock full of them. We've got Brian Clear on deck. He's the U.S. brand manager for Kerrygold Butter. I have to change some of the things that I say because people mightn't understand what I'm, I'm saying. Definitely worked on my articulation. Brian's going to tell us why Irish butter is so freaking good. We've also got Michelin-starred Irish chef and food columnist J.P. McMahon, who joins the show all the way from Galway, Ireland, to talk about the long history of fish pie and to deliver a public service announcement that Irish people don't only eat potatoes. Irish food is still unfortunately tied to the potato. I'm always given out about it because it's only, the potatoes have only been in Ireland for about 300 years and people have been here about 10,000. So in a near our fine dining restaurant, we don't serve potatoes. And for that reason, because I'm sick of people uh, associating them with Irish food. Okay, so those are the Irish accents. And just to brag about how international your last meal is, I decided to throw in a Japanese accent as well. I chat with KFC Japan about a very intriguing Christmas tradition. Plus, American accent, Stella Parks, senior editor at Serious Eats and author of the super popular baking book, Brave Tart. She pops in to explain her love affair with cheap butter. Dang, that's a lot of guests. We got to get started. Here is my conversation with Maeve Higgins. What surprised you or what did you delight in or what were you horrified by as far as food in America? Well, you know, one of the big draws for me was the portion sizes here. (laughs) (laughs) The very first time I came to America, which I actually forgot about, was we came to Disney World. My sister won a trip from a drawing competition. And when I was 15, we came to Disney World. And I just remember like the actual size of the food like I don't know why but they they sell turkey drumsticks in Disney World like as a kind of a snack that is my strongest memory of going to Disney World also that is the (laughs) one thing I remember really (laughs) isn't it weird like why did they decide to do that and I don't think they sell any other parts of the turkey so I don't know what like (laughs) deal Mickey Mouse has with like some turkey farmer who just has legs like but I just remember being like this is 
like heaven. If this giant, the size of my forearm of protein, like if this is considered a snack, like I am home. <laughs> and there's, um, you know, my first Thanksgiving here was, it was actually quite a loaded thing because of course, Thanksgiving is a uniquely American holiday. And so I hadn't been to one, but I'd seen it on TV so much and I'd seen it in movies so much. Um, but I didn't know anybody. So my friends who happened to be a lot of immigrants, we all had like a Friendsgiving. And, you know, all this stuff happened that like I didn't expect to happen at a meal. For one thing, um, we do have one American friend, Abby, and she brought a sweet potato casserole with marshmallows in it. And I was so confused by the sweetness and the fact that that was part of the main course that it tasted to me like a dessert, like I was really thrown. Maeve, girl, you're not the only one thrown by marshmallow top sweet potatoes. Plenty of us American born citizens also find it confusing, which is putting it politely. A lot of people find it completely disgusting. The history of the sticky sweet sweet potato and marshmallow casserole is oh so American. Like so many wholesome American traditions, it was born out of a company trying to make money. So according to Savoir magazine, the story starts with a couple of German immigrants who invented Cracker Jack in the late 1800s. And for the record, it is Cracker Jack, not Cracker Jacks. And in 1907, these same people introduced mass factory-made marshmallows to Americans. And a decade after that, they were looking to boost marshmallow sales. So they linked up with a lady called Janet Mackenzie Hill. She founded the Boston Cooking School magazine, and they had her develop a booklet of recipes that would encourage Americans to see the marshmallow as an everyday ingredient, not just something that you would roast by the campfire. And Janet came up with all kinds of classic recipes. She's the one, I guess, who's responsible for putting marshmallows in hot cocoa. Uh, she came up with the idea for putting marshmallows in fudge and the polarizing sweet potato marshmallow casserole. This is the very first published recipe. This is in 1917. So Janet invented the sweet potato marshmallow casserole, which is good to know because if you hate it, now you know whose house to teepee. Well, I guess actually it'd probably be like her grave. So I don't know if that'd be disrespectful to go teepee the grave of Janet Mackenzie Hill, but maybe you could leave like a bag of marshmallows and light it on fire or something. <laughs> The opinions of Rachel Bell regarding weaponized flammable marshmallow confections and their proximity to the deceased do not necessarily reflect those of your last meal, its guests, sponsors, parent company, or anyone anywhere ever. All efforts to seek revenge against the creation of objectionable mallow-related cuisine should only be exercised via sternly worded letter, impassioned discourse with friends, or tweeting in all caps. Living in the U.S., Maeve has gotten the experience of celebrating American holidays. And when I lived in Japan about eight years ago, I had the experience of celebrating American holidays in a foreign country. Now, I have never considered myself an especially patriotic person, but there's something about living abroad that made me feel very proud to be an American. I practically was wearing an American flag bikini, uh, but mostly I was trying to keep up with the holidays that I had grown up with. So on Thanksgiving, all of my American friends gathered in someone's apartment and attempted to make a Thanksgiving meal. This was challenging because in Japan, you can't buy a turkey. They don't eat turkeys. They don't sell the whole bird. And most people don't have an oven. There are no ovens in apartments, so we had to figure out this menu. Uh, and then on Passover, my Jewish friends and I gathered to make a Seder. Again, we had to change things up. There was no matzah that we could find, so we used saltines. Instead of the classic horseradish, we used wasabi. And it was really fun. It was kind of an adventure to celebrate uh, these Western holidays when I was in a foreign country in Japan. But when December rolled around, 
I figured there wasn't going to be a Japanese Christmas season because the main religions are Shinto and Buddhism. I think one or two percent of Japanese people are Christians. But I learned that Japanese people do celebrate Christmas, but they do it in their own way. They don't get the day off of work. But one of the biggest Christmas Day traditions is getting a bucket of fried chicken from KFC. The BBC reports that 3.6 million Japanese families eat KFC during the Christmas season. So I called up Yuko Nakajima. She's the chief marketing officer for KFC Japan to ask her how Kentucky Fried Chicken became associated with Japanese Christmas. So it's a very funny story because we came into uh, Japan in the 70s. Um, two years from now, it would be our 50th anniversary, by the way. But um, a foreigner came into our stores in, in the 70s and said, I want to buy turkey somewhere, but uh, I couldn't find it anywhere. So I will celebrate with chicken instead of turkey. And then our people thought, OK, wow, so maybe that's it. We can start saying for Christmas... KFC. So I think that was the beginning. So one guy comes into one KFC and then how does uh that become a national phenomenon? I guess um, people started celebrating, I think in the 60s, where people got the idea of Christmas and started getting bigger, but they really didn't know how to celebrate. So in there, I think we started saying KFC for Christmas And then we started a campaign, a Christmas campaign, which you have the family and you have the chicken and you have the uh, happy feeling. And then suddenly everybody thought, wow, that's very stylish. You know, I want to do that as well. At that time, fried chicken was really, really stylish food for Japanese people. So it all associated together. It's a special meal. It's, It's once a year meal. And it's so special that it's a great occasion. It just makes people happy. So in a way, KFC is pretty much responsible for making Christmas a thing in Japan. And people can start reserving the special Christmas chicken dinner in November. So our main one is called Party Barrel. And this has fried chicken, our KFC original recipe. And then it has salad and it has cake. And then with that, this is not food, but we have a special plate that we always have a design plate that changes every year. So people are waiting for that as well. And then we have other options where we just have roast chicken. You can reserve in advance and come and pick up on that day, or you can walk in, but uh, you will have to get in the queue. And that's also a tradition that people enjoy to get in the queue at Christmas. So how much of your sales for a whole year come from this Christmas dinner? We have about three to five days that we do this special Christmas. I would say maybe 10%. By the way, producer Aaron, I don't know if you know this. This is my favorite thing that I've learned in weeks. If you go to KFC's Twitter page, they have millions of followers, but they are only following 11 people, all members of the Spice Girls and six guys named Herb. (laughs) They're following 11 herbs and spices. (laughs) It's so clever. It's one of those things. It's like, oh, God, why didn't I think of that? It's amazing. Okay. You sit with that. Maybe you'll go to the Twitter KFC page and check it out. We have to take a break. But when we come back, Maeve is going to share her last meal. And we're going to discuss when to buy fancy European butter and when to buy the cheap stuff. BRB. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, 
you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. What would your last meal be? Um, I think it would be fish pie made with haddock. Um, with peas in it and a white sauce and mashed potato on top. That was my childhood comfort food. So I think that's what I would probably go back to when I am 130 years old, having my last meal, which would hopefully be, I'll be fed it by my young husband, who will be weeping the whole time. So your young husband will be about 90. (laughs) Yeah, he'll be 90 and he'll be really, he'll be really good at making haddock pie. Is that a traditional Irish dish? I've never heard of it before. Really? Yeah. Then I suppose it must be. I mean, I think haddock is maybe it's like coley. You know, it's like a smoked fish. It's like a smoked coley, maybe. So it's like a thick white fish and you smoke it. So it's kind of like a turmeric yellow in color. And then you just boil it in milk with an onion and then you flake it. And then you put some peas and the onion that you cooked it with and you slice that up. And then you just do like a bechamel sauce. And then cover it with mashed potato, which you do with everything in Ireland, obviously. And then a little bit of cheese and then you put it in the oven. That sounds so delicious. On a cold day, like on a drizzly day, it's just the best thing. And it's just a really substantial, like lovely one pot dinner too, you know. And do you still make for yourself now that you're here on your own, lonely in New York? (laughs) I just, yeah, and I managed to, yeah, you know, it's funny because I'm from a family of eight children and we all cooked growing up and it's a big part of our family life. And so I definitely found it hard to cook for like less than six people now um, because I'm just so used to cooking for bigger numbers. And all of my sisters found the same thing. And in fact, I think that's why my sisters keep having children now. It's just to kind of keep up with the amount of food that they make. <laughs> and <laughs> I I have made it once um, since I've been here. But I would say I just forgot like how much smoked fish, like especially when you're cooking with it, it really stinks up your apartment. And it's like a different thing. If you live in the middle of the Irish countryside, you just open all your windows But if you're living in an apartment building in Brooklyn, it is no fun for your neighbors. 
Yeah, but you were in the land of smoke fish because us Jews also yeah. love smoke fish. So I feel like you could go to Russ and Daughters and probably get some pre-smoked haddock and just throw it in there and top it with mashed potatoes. I love that place. Oh, my God. But it's so funny because when I go to a place like Russ and Daughters, I want to get their specialty. You know, I don't yeah. want to be recreating my home thing. I want to see what they're going to do. What I always do there is I get the bagel with the onions and the gherkins and the smoked salmon. Um, I have to say, I don't really try and recreate my family meals. Maybe I will when I'm older. But for now, I what I love about living in New York is that all the different foods that are available to me. So I'm much more inclined to kind of go exploring um, rather than kind of going back, you know. Maeve Higgins wants fish pie for her last meal. And I feel like as an American, a lot of people are like, ew, fish pie. Stop that. You stop that right now. It sounds to me just like shepherd's pie. But instead of the meat, it's smoked fish and you have a bechamel sauce or kind of like a really thick smoked chowder wearing a mashed potato hat. Huh? Sounds good. The dish has a very long history in the UK. So I turned to an Irish chef to learn more. JP McMahon is the chef owner of three restaurants in Galway. One of them, which is called Anir, only uses ingredients that are native to Ireland. So we don't use any pepper or lemons or chocolate or spices so it's all just irish uh, products and so it's a, it's all mission star fine dining restaurants so it's not um, it's not just like potatoes and and lamb and when i was trying to research the history of fish pie hardly anything came up online i found plenty of recipes but not much commentary on the dish except for an article that jp wrote in his cooking column for the irish times I was surprised to see how old and how far back this dish went. Yeah, so like when I did that little bit of research for the column, you can it goes back to like the the Normans, so about a thousand years ago, or eleven hundred years ago, and it was a kind of regal dish. I mean, I suppose that began with like quite a I don't know what the right word is, gnarly, like it was made with lamprey, which are kind of like eel-like fish, um, and it would have been pickled with blood and then pastry over it. So it would almost be like a like a black pudding fish pie. That would have had a lot of spices in it, like nutmeg and mace and uh, and cinnamon, all of the which would have masked the strength of the of pudding. But I think over the years, I mean, the fish pie. There was a royal fish pie, and there's different variations of it. Some with the fish sticking out of the top of it, which you can actually still see in certain European countries as well, where they bake a pastry and stick anchovies up out of the pie. But it, yeah, it has a kind of thousand year tradition, and I think from being a kind of part of the of the British courts, it kind of infiltrated down into the public houses. And that's why, I mean, I think in the like 18th and 19th century, the fish pie would have been quite a staple of the British public houses, but also of um, obviously the Irish country house tradition, which would have been, I suppose, the, the Anglo-Irish landowners. So fish pie used to be a popular pub dish. But JP says it's not something you really see anymore, not even in people's kitchens at home. It's a UK retro classic. Kind of like marshmallow sweet potato casserole, but less gross. People really, really associate potatoes with Ireland. Um, and so having mashed potatoes on the top of this dish just seems to go. Is that something that's still really popular? Do Irish people do still eat a lot of potatoes or is that an old school idea? Yeah, like yes and no. I mean, Irish food is still unfortunately tied to the potato. I'm always given out about it because it's only, the potatoes have only been in Ireland for about 300 years and people have been here about 10,000. So it's kind of reductive, but it's still... Uh, it is one of those things we like in in a near our fine dining restaurant. We don't serve potatoes, and for that reason, because I'm sick of people uh, associating them with Irish food. But like, it is a difficult thing to to shake off, um, because we're like almost tied to the potato. But for me, 
we've kind of ignored a lot of other stuff in Ireland, like shellfish. I mean, we have so much shellfish in Ireland and a lot of it we don't eat, like, say, mussels and oysters and langoustines and clams. And a lot of it is uh, exported. And so for me, I'm always trying to encourage people to kind of see Irish food through the lens of the of the sea as opposed to the, the lens of the land. But one of Maeve's favorite, favorite Irish foods does come from the land. She loves Irish butter. I've definitely tried to make soda bread here, but I've found that like it's not the same. The soda bread is fine, right? Because it's such a simple set of ingredients. But if you don't use Irish butter, I realized that it was like the butter that I was always after. Like I could eat any type of bread, but unless it has Irish butter, which is so different to American butter, it's a different color, it's a different texture and it's a completely different taste. And always our butter is salted. That's like a huge thing that I've realized makes the taste difference. And I think also that the cows are outside, you know, and um, it really makes a difference to our butter. You do have the superior butter. That is true. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I think in general. <laughs> I think in general, we're lucky with our dairy, you know, I think um, because it rains all the time, which is kind of a high price to pay for delicious butter, <laughs> just to be in a rainy country with terrible hair for your entire life. Um, <laughs> but maybe it's worth it when the dairy is so good, like the cream, too. Oh, my God. My nieces are basically raised on cream and they're turning out fine. I mean, they're chubby, but they're cute. <laughs> if you haven't had Irish butter... Get your butter-loving butt to the grocery store and pick some up. You can buy it in the United States. Kerrygold, they sell their Irish butter in grocery stores across the U.S., and it is super good. It is bright yellow. It's creamy. It's rich. It's saltier than American butter, and it takes bread and butter to a whole new level. Kerrygold U.S. Marketing Director Brian Clear tells us why. In Ireland, um, we have a much different dairy system or dairy environment than uh, here in the U.S., um, so it's predominantly like a, a grass-based diet that our cows enjoy. They'll graze outdoors for up to 300 days of the year. And like half the country is actually used to grow grass for agriculture. Is the grass what makes the butter come out so yellow? Yeah, 100%. So uh, we actually sometimes get consumers emailing us asking, do we add a dye to our butter? The color in the butter comes from beta carotene, which which is naturally occurring in grass that the cows consume. And then that kind of goes through the chain, through their milk, uh, and you kind of see it visibly in the butter. And did you say that it is more spreadable straight out of the fridge? Uh, Not that I would recommend any consumer to do this, but in Ireland, that would be a kind of conversation piece of like, do you leave the butter in or out of the fridge? And uh, because of the temperature in Ireland doesn't really vary too much. At home growing up, we would always have just a butter dish on the table, not refrigerated or whatever, to make sure that it was always kind of spreadable. All right, Aaron. Counter or fridge, where do you keep your butter? Now, this is an area of uh, great hostility in my home because my girlfriend and I disagree as to where the butter should be. I cannot fathom for any reason why anyone would want cold butter on their bread. You can't spread it. It rips everything up. I get, I, I get it. If you want to keep it cold because you like to bite it, maybe? Because you like sanitation? 
Uh, no, that's you wrap it, you cover it. That's what butter dishes are for. You're fine. Flies aren't going to lay eggs in it or the various other things she tells me will happen to this laid out butter. Well, I never thought about that possibility. I'm with you. I think it belongs on the counter, but I grew up in a household where it's kept in the fridge. And so I haven't broken the habit yet, but I hate when it's cold. And when you get the little butter packets wrapped in the gold foil, when you yeah. go out to eat, I sit on them so that my <gasps> butt can warm them up because that is really the worst as well. Like at a restaurant, there's no reason why they are serving ice cold butter packets. Butt butter? Butt butter. Rachel. I wish I had a bigger butt because I have a kind of a small butt <laughs> and I feel like it probably takes me longer to warm the butter. Um, so in my next life, mm. I'll have a big butter melting badonkadonk. And you you told me in an email that your family has a connection to Maeve. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. So, well, you know, you know, this idea of six degrees of separation. Yep. Yeah, well, in Ireland, it's probably one or less. So okay. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but Maeve you don't probably... have you don't have the Kevin Bacon. So this is like one degree separation from Maeve Higgins, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm sh- pretty sure she probably moved to the US to try escape this type of colloquialism. But uh, I'm going to probably hit a lot of Irish stereotypes here. But uh, I work here selling Irish dairy, but I grew up in a pub. Uh, my parents run a pub and they also ran a little theater at the back of it where i'm from is a place called kilkenny and every year they have a fairly well-known comedy festival so Maeve actually would have uh, played in our little theater a good few times i think over the years that's so, so but cool but i don't know her directly but sure that was our one degree of separation and for people in the states who uh, may be listening to the podcast and this could be their first introduction to Maeve, uh is she a pretty big name in ireland oh yeah 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 everybody would know um Maeve, all right, very well. Yeah, yeah. She's had a good few shows. She's toured the country. She'd be, uh, she'd be hundred percent be a household name, but a uh, well-known comedian. When I was looking for butter experts for this episode, I put a call out on Twitter, and I was connected with Stella Parks. She's the senior editor at Serious Eats and the author of Brave Tart, a very, very beloved baking book that tells you how to make Oreos at home, how to make homemade sprinkles, and a bazillion other delicious desserts. And Stella is known for having a very strong opinion about butter. Even her Twitter and Instagram bios say, I love cheap butter and expensive chocolate. But we're here to talk about cheap butter. So when I called Irish butter superior, Stella had a few words for me. Well, I think that the idea of superiority has got to be rooted in context. You can't just say, oh, well, more fat is always better or the, the flavor of culturing is always better uh, because there's a lot of recipes where you're not going to taste that. If you're making, say, an American-style chocolate cake and it's loaded with coffee and brown sugar and cocoa powder and vanilla extract and all these things, the flavor of cultured butter isn't going to come through whatsoever. Like, I have done countless blind tastings. Um, it's a thing I used to do at a restaurant where I work uh, with these kind of like side-by-side comparisons. And people are just like, it's the exact same cake twice. What is wrong with you? Like, this is not even fun. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, well, there's a huge price difference between these cakes because this one's made with extremely fancy cultured butter. And it's like, well, why? So it kind of seems silly for me to ask readers uh, on Serious Eats or readers of my book um, to like, pony up for cultured butter, which is often, you know, a lot more expensive and typically in line with a Euro style. It's just not really a worthwhile investment for something that's going to be covered up. I totally agree. Now I'm I'm seeing what you're saying. I agree. Like when it's with baking, I don't think it matters either. But if I'm going to eat butter on a piece of bread, that's when I want to taste really yeah, salty, absolutely. good butter. Absolutely. If I'm going to make 
um, you know, a pasta dish or have some bread and butter or, you know, butter and radishes or something. Yeah, I'm going to spring for some really good butter where you're able to savor that flavor. Um, but another issue is a lot of European style butters have a higher fat content and they're kind of formulated in a way that they're a little bit softer. And those properties are amazing for European style desserts. Like if you're making croissants, it's so hard to make it with American butter because it's leaner and a lot harder straight from the fridge. Um, so it doesn't roll out as nicely and it's, it's much harder to laminate. It's more likely to like crack. But if you're talking about, say, an American style pie crust or chocolate chip cookies, that extra fat and the softer texture are both going to be working against you. Our recipes evolved with our style of butter. Stella says if you're going to spring for quality ingredients when you're baking, get the good cocoa powder, get the good chocolate, get the good vanilla, because most of the stuff on the shelf is kind of bad. But she always buys store brand butter. And Stella won a James Beard Award for the store brand butter cookies and cakes in her book. So I would stick with Stella. Now, this might be a good time to mention that I have this big hunk of a man that I'm dating. No, that's not what I was going to say. I have this big hunk of butter in my fridge, and it's this very fancy French butter. And it has these big flaky shards of salt ribbon through it. And it is one of the best butters I've ever had. And my boyfriend came over last week and he took it out of the fridge and he opened up the wrapper and he just held it up to reveal the teeth marks in the butter. (laughs) And I had to reveal, well, of course it was me. Who else would it be? Like, I just take bites. I take bites of the butter. It's that good. It's that good. Also, sometimes I'm lazy. So like the other day I just had in each hand, I had a sweet potato in one hand and that butter. And I just take a bite and a bite and a bite. No one has time to spread. (laughs) All right, break time. But when we come back, more from Maeve Higgins. Don't you love her? She's funny. You want to hear more from her. Maeve tells me why any single gal at a party should always stand by the crock pot full of little Smokies. Back in August, Maeve wrote an opinion piece for The New York Times called Americans are Terrible at Small Talk, as in she'd like a little bit more small talk, please. I think certainly in New York, people are very fast to just like get into the real stuff. And like as an Irish person, we really communicate in small talk, even, you know, on my deathbed, if my closest and dearest um relatives came in I'd probably just end up being like what's the weather like outside and you know (laughs) how was the traffic but here in New York you meet a stranger and two seconds later they're literally like oh my god my IBS it's really kicking off this morning or you know (laughs) I gave the example in that piece in the New York Times um I was at a kid's party always the best parties especially for food um and this guy was like you know the thing that they don't tell you is sometimes you're not going to like your kid. And I was kind of like, um, I just asked if you're online for the bouncy castle. Right. I, sorry about your, <laughs> that you got a bad child. But I mean, the thing is he didn't get a bad child. He was just having a bad day, but he felt completely fine about opening up to me in that way. And I was a total stranger. So that's a bit of a culture shock for sure. When you come from a country where everything is a secret until you've had a drink. Well, why do you think small talk is better? Because, you know, we actually publish articles here about avoiding small talk. I've talked about it on my show before. <laughs> you know, let's do medium talk. Let's do big talk. Let's let's mm-hmm. try to get to know each other faster. Uh, how would you promote small talk as, as the better way to go when you first meet someone? 
you know often the question I get asked when I go to parties and I meet new people here it's kind of like who do you work for or how do you know Stacey or you know who do you write for you know that you're being classified and um and even if it sounds good like if I say oh I just I'm doing a book with Penguin or like I work for the New York Times they get a certain idea of me but that could actually be wrong and I think it's subtler and it might take a little bit of a longer time but you get a better measure of a person um if you actually go in gently and see what they're really about you know and I think maybe it's because I'm afraid of um direct <laughs> directly speaking to anybody but I think kind of going around is um it can take a bit longer but it's more fun and it gets the true part of somebody too um rather than just figuring out what they're worth you know yeah I mean I wouldn't call small talk what I do because yeah I don't really like to ask about the weather and what people do but I like to just come in with something relevant and silly and kind of quirky so that you can have fun with mm-hmm. someone instead of just like an exchange of information Yes, totally. And I think, Rachel, like food is a brilliant thing to talk about because, you know, like we said, it's all wrapped up in culture and there's so many little missteps that you can make with food and there's so many little hints about yourself that you give with food. So food is a brilliant thing to talk about. Oh, my God. I remember discussing trifle with this old woman at my aunt's Christmas party for maybe 25 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's and a I Guinness love book. That's I love a Guinness her world yeah. record. <laughs> um, or, yeah, if you feel awkward, then you just start shoving deviled eggs into your mouth so that you can't speak and the other person has to do all the talking. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Because I think, yeah, for someone who's prone to anxiety, it's a really nice thing to do to just stand by the dip. (laughs) What is your favorite food at a party? Um, Well, I, I always loved cocktail sausages. And then I remember this woman telling me who I used to babysit for. She was like, I'll tell you the thing about cocktail sausages men love them what? and I was like what <laughs> she also <laughs> I don't know where she got it from she also told me that men love a smoky eye and <laughs> she was always you know she would come home to relieve me of my babysitting duty so she would have had a few drinks and she'd always like try and impart this wisdom to me and I'll never forget <laughs> those are like the two pieces of advice that I've really clung to and that have not served me <laughs> that's funny because I don't know if you know that um but we call our cocktail sausages, the brand is a little Smokies. So it's actually the perfect combination <laughs> of those two things. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, my God. She was onto something. She was. She, maybe that's her business. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you little said that because that is my number one favorite thing to eat, too, because I will never, ever, ever buy them myself. But if they're at a party in yeah. a crock pot with that like sweet kind of barbecue sauce, I will never... Oh leave that pot I just stand there with the toothpick and just eat it and eat it and eat it (laughs) everyone's like where's Rachel she was last seen by the (laughs) crop with a smoky eye (laughs) (laughs) and that was Maeve Higgins last meal pick up her new book Maeve in America at your favorite bookstore I would just love to point out that there's no refunds if you do buy the book and if I'm just kidding (laughs) I mean I'm on Instagram at Maeve in America which is the same as the book title and I'm probably too addicted to Instagram and the main reason I use it is for food my sister in Ireland she's a food writer and um, I'm constantly stalking her page to see what she's making nice well thank you so much for the chat and um, it was lovely talking to you thank you so much thanks Smokey bye (laughs) bye Thanks to Brian Clear, Marketing Director for Kerrygold North America. And to J.P. McMahon, Irish Times columnist and chef owner of three restaurants in Galway, Ireland. 
Anir is his Michelin-starred fine dining spot. There's Tartar, a natural wine bar, and Cava Bodega, a Spanish tapas restaurant. You can learn more at eatgalway.ie. I never heard of that one before. Irish people get that one. Thanks to Yuko Nakajima, Chief Marketing Officer for KFC Japan. If you happen to be in Japan this Christmas, eat like a local and queue up at KFC. And thank you to Stella Parks, senior editor at Serious Eats and the author of the fantastic baking book, Brave Tart. Brave Tart won a James Beard Award earlier this year, and it's a New York Times bestseller. Woo, it's a lot of thank yous. We had more guests on this episode than any other episode. Uh, To keep with the Irish tradition, I'm going to call the Guinness Book of World Records because as a kid, I was obsessed with it. Uh, Two favorite pages. One, lady with longest nails standing at the balcony with her like curling nails cascading feet down to the floor. Actually, that's the only one I remember. What was your favorite page? I liked all the human oddities. So world's tallest man. Yeah. Robert Wadlow. You remember his name? I believe his name was. It's all. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me. Theme music, as always, by Prom Queen. And make sure and follow us on Instagram. We just had a contest. Somebody won a $100 gift card to Heritage Distilling. Uh, this was Tracy Thorpe. Thank you so much, Tracy. She posted a photo ow, of her last meal, which was a bagel with locks and all the trimmings. So uh, follow on Instagram. It's your last meal podcast. We may have a contest in the future that you could win, but you wouldn't know because you don't follow on Instagram. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. I'm with you. I don't I just burp, so I'm gonna do that again. <laughs> if you haven't, 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 yeah. Okay. When I was looking for butter experts for this episode, I put a cow I put a cowl out on Twizzler. <laughs> I was like, yo, licorice, what you got? All right. <laughs>